Hello there, and thank you for downloading this Ion Education podcast from the 31st of March. And on the programme today, we put the focus on inclusivity ahead of World Autism Awareness Day on April the 2nd. We caught up with a mum of twin boys with autism and also a campaigner who's working with schools to encourage more inclusivity for children of determination. We heard from Jessica Smith, a former Paralympian and the co-founder of Touch. And we also talked about the importance of inclusivity in sport. That was with Seth Amoafo, the founder of Pass Abu Dhabi. Meanwhile, one year after Expo 2020 Dubai closed, we looked at the educational legacy of the World's Fair with Marjan Faradouni, Chief of Education and Culture at Expo City. And school fees at private schools in Dubai and Sharjah are going up. But will that have an impact on teachers' salaries? We heard from Lisa Grace Wilson, the editorial director of Teach Middle East. And we looked at the latest COVID-19 vaccine advice for children and teens. That's as the World Health Organization changes its protocols. We heard from Dr. Kate O'Brien, their director of immunization, vaccines and biologicals. This is Eye on Education on the Agenda. With the Royal Grammar School Guildford Dubai, passionate about creating personalised learning experiences to nurture independent and future-ready young people. Hello there. Welcome back to The Agenda. It is 12.05 and we are in the midst of our special Eye on Education programme, which is our chance to really put the spotlight on all the different permutations of schools stories. And one of the topics that we're doing on the programme today is something that I've always had a, a close interest in, and that is falls under the umbrella of inclusivity because a a recent newspaper article really caught our eye here on the programme and it suggested that more support is needed for parents of children with autism. That was the message from a local expert and that comes ahead of World Autism Awareness Day which takes place on Sunday. So in an interview with the national newspaper, Mohammed Al-Emadi, he's the director of the Dubai Autism Centre, suggested some families are being priced out of essential services. And he's called for insurance companies to be mandated to provide coverage for key autism treatment to ease the financial burden on families. He'd like things like behavioural and speech therapies to be covered. He says they are crucial to the development of young children with the condition and not just a choice. Now, these treatments can typically cost up to 120,000 dirhams each year. Joining me now to talk through those therapies and whether or not they're ever provided by mainstream schools, for example, I'm joined by Ambreen Sabir, who is the mother of autistic twins. She's joined me in the studio. Ambreen, how are you? Lovely to speak to you again. Good afternoon. It's lovely to be here. Aaron is like family. Yes. So. Well, I've definitely met you several times in the past, but I don't remember how old the twins are now. Where have they got to? Uh, the twins are going to be nine years next month. So they're big boys now. Yeah, they really are. They're about they're the same age as my eldest oh. then or... Yes, around the same age as my eldest. Uh, Tell me a little bit more about the specialist treatments that you either like to to give to them or that you feel are absolutely necessary for their development. Because I think many people who don't have children with autism in the family don't really know what it entails, what it involves. Yeah. So basically, it's um, first and foremost, it's ABA, Applied Behaviour. Um, this is the first thing you're going to listen to when you talk about autism. And um, then it's occupational therapy, physiotherapy, speech therapy, play therapy, um, oromotor therapy. You know, there are sub-therapies that come under speech therapy. But uh, the one that stands above all is the behavior therapy. And uh, again, it uh, since autism is a spectrum, so, uh, you know, there are kids who only need a little bit of ABA, a little bit of push with speech therapy and they'll bloom. Then there are kids who are moderate to severe. They need therapies on a daily basis. And um, each year, um, like I'll, I'll talk with my twins, talk about my twins and my experience. Like each year for us, um, it came with different challenges since they're growing up. The speech is not coming uh, out too much. It's uh, ending up in a lot of behavior. So you need a combination 
of the therapies to work. Like in my case, I know I need a typical school in the morning so that they have a routine and peer interaction um, and, you know, to develop their socializing skills and all. But again, they also need one-to-one ABA therapy, speech therapy and occupational therapy as well. So it goes hand in hand. And I mean, the heartbreaking thing, I suppose, is for families who can't afford it is that you know that those types of therapies could have a real impact on your children because they're growing so fast, they're learning so fast that if you get in early with those types of treatments, then you know it can have a real impact on their future. See, early intervention, that's that's the key word. Um, this is what I've been telling everybody around me who have just got the diagnosis that early intervention is everything. You know, when they are younger, it's easier to, uh, you know, to work with them. And when they are grown, like grown-ups, like my kids, now they're nine and they're like, they're tall, they're big. It physically, it also gets really difficult. Uh, early intervention is obviously the key. But again, the thing is, um, for like my kids, again, I'd say, I know that they need therapies maybe uh, for life mm-hmm. um, because they're moderate to severe. Initially, I thought they're mild, but as they grow, you know, things get more clear. Um But the biggest thing that I hear and I can, you know, talk about on behalf of so many parents is the financial aspect. Mm. Like these therapies are really expensive and uh, most of the time it's not covered. I was reading the article that you just mentioned in the National. Uh, It was really nice of the Biodism Center to come out and talk about it uh, because parents are really worried. Because I know like, you know, I'll just quickly tell you in my scenario right now, my kids are going to a special school. I know that they can bloom better in a normal school uh, with therapies in the evening. But since I have multiples, I cannot afford it, to be very honest. Mm. Uh, And it kills you inside when you know what your child needs, but you cannot give it because you cannot afford it. And when you go to the insurance companies, they will tell you that, oh, it's genetic. It's come. It comes under behaviors. Really, you'll find an insurance company that is covering it all. I mean, I went to my insurance, they're like, you can, we can give you eight to 10 sessions of speech therapy. And I was like, jaw drop shocked because eight sessions of therapy with a child who has severe speech delay, it's nothing. Yeah, they need it. I mean, they need 52 at the very least, you know, once a week for many years. uh, Since it's a spectrum, as I told you, there are kids who will need speech therapy every day of the week. Right now, one of my child, one of my twins, he has a lot of behavior because the speech is not coming out. He's doing good in the school he's going to. But I've been told that he needs behavior therapy and speech therapy and occupational therapy, maybe three to four times a week. But when I look at the cost and I multiply it with two, I cannot afford it. And, you know, it affects everything in your life, Mm. your marriage, your financial aspect of your, you know, how how you're spending so much. And then, you know, you are an I'm an expert. And I'll I'll talk on that behalf on, on that behalf as well. When you get the diagnosis, you are so emotionally overwhelmed that you want to grab every help for your child that is out there. But it's a journey. After some time, you realize that, you know, you need to save money as well. Because the biggest question as a special parent in your head is what is going to happen when I'm not there tomorrow? So I need to save some for my kids. But when you look at the therapies and their costs, you're like... You know, it's such a difficult situation. I'm sure many parents who are listening, they can relate right now. Mm. It kills you inside because right now I need, I know what my twins need, but I cannot afford it. And so realistically, how much are you spending a week on extra therapies that, for example, me with two boys of very similar ages, uh, although they're not multiples, they're only about 14 months apart. How much more are you spending a month on therapies that I don't have to because my children don't have autism? See, I'll just tell you, um, in Dubai, you have a range, like you'll get cheaper therapies, you'll get expensive therapies, you'll get really expensive therapies. So when I started my journey, I was not sending them to school because I tried schools and, you know, I I just realized um, it's not for my kids. Mm -hmm. At that time, they needed more therapies. So I was just literally paying 20 to 22K from my pocket to a center which was giving four days of therapy, ABA, and one day of OT and one day of speech to one of my child. So it was like 22K to one center only. School was not included per month. Per month? Per month. It was per month. It was per, For one child? For two kids. But it for was just kids. one therapy. 
Oh my goodness. And it's school is not included. So when they turned 5, uh, we thought, you know, because it's always good to expose them to, you know, typical environment, normal kids, typical kids because, you know, they are not dumb. They they learn, they pick up from typical of kids. Of course, yeah. Um when I went to schools, um most of the schools were not ready to accept them. Um the ones who were ready to accept them, they were like you need to provide a shadow. Mm-hmm. And uh, the shadow is like it's not covered by yeah. the insurances again. Um so I gave up. eventually i gave up and i ended up in a special school and then you know the the thing of inclusion comes okay government has given you an infra- infrastructure so schools that you have to be inclusive and you see kids like there are two to three kids in a school that are special that are, you know maybe autistic or down syndrome but again um is the environment really inclusive uh, do the kids around the special kids they know this child mm-hmm. has a tip problem they like there are there are different kind of examples you'll find here in dubai so sometimes it works brilliantly sometimes it works there are schools that are doing great there are schools that you know that made parents cry and they ended up in special schools uh, so i ended up in a special school and um i'm happy with them because uh, my kids are happy Good. and um and then it varies from parents to parents as well parent to parent as well um after some time looking at my kids i realized that you know they are not for the mainstream school i don't want them to you know go into a pressurized environment that will end up in more behaviors uh so i chose the school that they are going to right now but again you want them to socialize eventually they have to go out in this society with neurotypical kids so you want them to go to a normal school so again in between i thought to put them in a normal school uh, but again the prices so expensive and then when you have two and uh sometimes i look at these sales going on and mm. i just think why they can't come up with buy one get one in schools as well yeah. so that it's easier for multi parents like yes, me or multi because kids. you're having to do it all at the same time like because they're the same age you know all yeah. the bills are just doubled clothes you know the ideal situation is like a child goes to a normal school um he has a perfect iep there is a perfect lsa uh, the school is inclusive and the environment is really inclusive and in the evening if he needs one to one therapies he gets them as well mm-hmm. and i'm sure he is going to flourish and bloom but th- everybody cannot do that because it's financially it's not possible and i'm really happy that people are coming out and talking about it i read mm-hmm. this article and i wrote to the national that i i loved it i mean as a parent it was really big for me to see such a big center come out and talk about parents because mm-hmm. it's really painful like i have goosebumps right now talking about it because um after coming to social media i just realized there's so many parents who are in such a difficult situation just because they know what their child wants but they cannot afford it have you ever you're an expat have you ever considered moving to get cheaper care you know it, would that be an option if you were to go to a different country do you think you might be able to find the therapies cheaper um i don't know i think everybody has a different opinion i love dubai i mean dubai is yeah. safe it's secure it's i Very feel tolerant. more it's more inclusive than any yes. part of the world i agree um it's beautiful i mean i love dubai it's not like i'm sitting on a radio stations i'm saying it i actually love it i adore it i feel more safe and secure here with my twins than in my own country uh though yes many parents like me have been told by many therapists and many centers here uh if you want cheap therapies you can go back to your own country But that's not the solution. It's not the solution. It's no, no, you're quite solution. right. And I look at them. I'm like, no, I'm not going to go back. Like Dubai is equally mine as well. Yes, your home. So it's 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 my home. It, I have been here more than decades, so I love it. Yeah. Um, it's just that we need to talk about the solution. This is not the solution. Leaving a place is not a solution just no. because you know I'll get cheap therapies. I'm from Pakistan, um, but I tell you, I. Dubai is more like home to me. I feel mm. more secure with my twins here. It's more inclusive. It's just that there are difficult things like, you know, with the one that we are talking about. It can be talked about. Mm. I mean, I personally think Dubai has such world records in so many things. We can do so much. Mm. And that is why I tell special parents, I push them to come out, talk about your challenges at platforms anywhere wherever you get a chance. Mm. you will be heard i mean there is a lot being done yes. there i i have seen things get better in the last 10 years and hopefully the future is going to be better but it's just that special parents also need to come out like when you have a problem you need to come out and talk about it so that the people know government has given you an infrastructure for schools for example that they have to be inclusive and all if you have a problem with inclusion and if you're facing a problem 
talk about it talk loud about it mm. the special needs community needs to come out as as a collective voice so that it can be heard and um if you like i'm talking about schools there are very good schools as well i mean my twins have been bullied in parks as well but they have been helped in parks parks as well they, yes. they have been nice the playgrounds bad kids as well but it's just that um me as a mother i always talk about my twins autism everywhere because you know when you talk about awareness and acceptance who is going to give it parents like us who have kids with the condition mm. and then you know you leave it up to the neurotypical world how do they accept it when you talk about acceptance i'm talking about acceptance here but for that i need to tell you georgia okay this is autism and this is what i expect from you then it's up to you it's your to do the right yeah, thing exactly so but i will do my job It's been such a pleasure to have you on the radio. Thank you so much for joining us to sp- and, and speaking so honestly a- a- about your experience and and what you're looking for ultimately as a representative of your community. I, essentially, it's been lovely to have you joining me on the line. Thank you so much. Thank you, uh, you have been listening to Ambreen Sabir. She's the mother of autistic twins who are now nine years old. I think I've been speaking to you since they were about three. So it's lovely to see you again and to have you right here on Eye on Education on Dubai Eye. Thank you. Pleasure to have. you with us this is i on education on the agenda with the royal grammar school guildford dubai passionate about creating personalized learning experiences to nurture independent and future ready young people Welcome back to the agenda. Welcome back to our special schools program Eye on Education. We're keeping our focus on inclusivity now and uh, asking the question what does it really mean to be inclusive as a school, a university or even a business? Now it is a dilemma that's now being navigated more than ever before in the UAE as a result of the country's 5-year strategy on disability inclusion. Now this program launched in 2020 aims to ensure that all people have equal access to education health and employment but as campaigners are at pains to point out there's a great deal more to that than simply installing ramps or making classrooms more accessible Paralympian Jessica Smith is the co-founder of Touch which is an inclusive talent agency and consultancy helping the UAE's community navigate everything from disability terminology to inclusive hiring practices. A little bit earlier she sat down with producer Jennifer Crichton to explain what the conversation actually means to people of determination and their families. I think that the UAE has made such a significant you know improvement when it comes to uh awareness and understanding of people of determination and so for me it's really looking at these issues from a social perspective and making sure that what the government is implementing is actually coming to fruition day to day and so i think that we're very lucky to live in the uae that we have a forward thinking government and obviously there's so much more that can be done you know on a global level as well but i think that what is happening here is that the conversation is taking place and that's a, the starting point for any of these particular issues and so it's really important that we celebrate the significance of you know world autism day and you know significant days that celebrate and validate all other disabilities as well so i think that there is lots happening but we all have a responsibility to be part of these very important conversations you're talking about the amount of progress that's been made as someone who grew up with a disability in childhood how have you seen the way that we handle disability as a society change over recent years so i think due to the conversations and the level of of awareness it has taken place there's a lot more i guess a sense of people being comfortable to talk about disability so that makes a huge difference as well because we can become fearful of what we don't know and what we don't understand and sadly that fear leads to so many of us making assumptions and judgments and so once we can you know start to have more of these conversations it eliminates that level of fear so certainly as you said you know I was born with a disability I grew up in a world where disability wasn't acknowledged or validated as much as I would have liked and so as a result of that I felt as though I was constantly having to prove myself with everything that I did in order to in many ways counter out the fact that I had a disability and that puts a lot of pressure on people of determination to constantly feel as though they have to be the best at everything that they that they do and i guess what does get frustrating sometimes is that disability isn't a new thing you know this has been around for forever and so i can get frustrating for people who are advocating for the human rights of people with a disability because for a lot of 
the conversations that have been taking place, it's as if this is something new. And and I guess that that's where sometimes I get a little bit frustrated, but I also know that I have a role to play as well in part of this much bigger puzzle. And, and that's to be able to use my voice and to use my platform to share parts of my story so that people do feel comfortable asking questions and, and contributing and being part of, like I said, the bigger conversation. The reason that we're having this discussion today is because obviously we're approaching World Autism Day. And a lot of the time when we're talking about disability, what we think of is is disabilities that are very visible, that we can see, that we can recognise from the outside and, and know exactly what it is that we're dealing with. And of course, when it comes to autism, that's a very invisible issue that families are dealing with. How do you think that provides extra challenges when it comes to inclusivity? I think what you find then is that because it isn't as obvious, it's much harder to then explain. And I feel there is a level of pressure then that people with autism and their families and friends feel that they constantly be having to have conversations that perhaps they otherwise wouldn't, you know, explaining diagnosis and explaining, you know, health conditions that are quite personal information in order to sort of prove the fact that they're living with a disability. So what, again, is really important is that people in society understand that for the majority, disabilities are invisible. And we have the global symbol of, you know, the, the wheelchair is, is what people think of when they think of disability. But of the 16% of people in the world living with a disability, only 8% are actually wheelchair users. So when you start to understand some of this, when you start to listen and, and learn the numbers and the statistics, then you start to understand the complexities of it and realise that disability isn't one thing. It doesn't look the same and it's very individual. And so certainly when we talk about disabilities that are invisible, there are a lot more compounded issues that can come because of the societal implications that come with that. And so days like World Autism Day are a wonderful and significant opportunity for people to come together to say, hey, I'm really interested in learning more. I would really like to be able to understand to be able to support and empower people that I know in my family or my friends and all my colleagues who identify with with autism or any other disability that is invisible so that we can be able to help make accommodations and make people feel as though they belong and that they're accepted and that they're connected to to their society. A lot of the work you do is around education on inclusivity. Tell me a bit about the work Touch is doing to help educate people at the older end of the spectrum about inclusivity. Yeah, so Touch was founded to be able to help people with a disability or people from minority groups to be able to share their story, to be able to give them a platform to do that. Because I think storytelling across all industries is one of the most powerful tools, you know, that that we have, because that means that we're able to learn from one another and grow and evolve as a collective. And so Touch is really here to be able to help navigate that process for people of determination, but for people in the wider community and also in the corporate setting. We have a significant program that's set up looking at community outreach for people of determination here in the region. But a lot of the work that we focus on is through education, as you said, in the corporate setting and in the community to help people with terminology, understanding what is disability, what is inclusion, and how do those two terms come together and what does it mean when you do say disability inclusion. And it is really looking at the fundamental basics of human rights and the fact that it doesn't matter what a person looks like or where they come from or what they identify around disability is that we all have the same basic human rights. And so a big focus is is also around um, employment and also accessibility And if we can have these really important conversations, like I said, it eliminates some of those barriers that still exist in society and will exist for for many years to come. But what's important is that level of awareness. And so that's what we're really trying to to do at Touch is to make sure that everybody feels as though they're part of the conversation and that they're supported in the conversation as well. And at the younger end of the spectrum, you've written a children's book series talking about disability. Tell me a bit about that and about the openness that children have that perhaps adults could learn from when it comes to learning about these issues. Yes, I've written a children's series called Just Jessica. And the idea is that it's a children's book series that follows a journey of a little girl with one hand. Uh, essentially, it's about my story, and there's three books in the series. So Jessica goes to school, Jessica goes swimming, and Jessica joins a band. And what I wanted to do was to break down the complex message around my journey and have that as a resource and a story for much younger children to be able to share this message as well. 
So it is about issues that any young child would be facing or experiencing, you know, the nerves and the anxiety of their first day at school or their first big event. And so I think that there are situations that everybody can relate to. But certainly what I've tried to do through this children's series is to have characters and stories that are relatable. And if children are able to see characters that represent themselves and represent, you know, their friends in the classroom, I think that, again, that is acknowledgement. You know, when you feel seen, you feel like you can take on the world. And I certainly didn't have any characters or cartoons that represented who I was when I was growing up. Disability was always portrayed as a villain, something to be scared of, something to be afraid of. And I really struggled with that because I was trying to find my own identity. And so I thought, you know, how beautiful would it be to be able to have a series of children's books that can help parents and teachers to be able to have that conversation and to be able to help their own child as they go out into the world and they see difference and diversity in all its beautiful forms. And so, yeah, the Just Jessica series is is my contribution, uh, you know, to, to the community and also a legacy for my own children. I have three young children myself and I want them to be able to feel comfortable with who they are and their friends and and me as well. I don't want them to feel as though they ever have to protect or defend me because people have said, you know, your mum only has one arm. I want them to feel proud of that. And so writing these books is, has been a wonderful, wonderful journey. And for me, it's it's really been about my give back and my contribution to to the next generation. Jessica Smith there, Paralympian and the co-founder of Touch, an inclusive talent agency and consultancy with a name to help the UAE's community navigate everything from disability terminology to inclusive hiring practices. Speaking there, of course, to producer Jennifer Crichton, right here on Ion Education on the Agenda. This is Ion Education on the Agenda. With the Royal Grammar School Guildford Dubai. Passionate about creating personalised learning experiences to nurture independent and future-ready young people. Hello there, welcome back to Ion Education right here on the agenda on Dubai I 103.8. And let's be honest, it's one thing to ensure that children of determination have access to educational opportunities. But what about fun. Now, inclusivity in sports is something that's coming under increasing focus here in the Emirates with a host of organisations looking at how they can make their extracurricular activities and holiday camps more open to children of all abilities. One such organisation is Pass Abu Dhabi. They're a community coaching firm which has previously teamed up with the Special Olympics UAE to offer unified football where half of each team is made up by disabled players. I'm delighted to say I'm joined now by Seth Amoafo. He's the founder of PASS and he is interrupting a visit home to Ghana to join me now on the line on Ion Education. Seth, thank you so much for joining us. How are you? I'm good, thank you, Jenny. I'm good, thank you. Thanks for, um, thanks for giving me the time. The it's... kids are just about to um, come to a school in Ghana to do some charity work, so I'm just holding back a little bit. Oh, good for you. Well, it's a pleasure to have you join us from Ghana. Tell me a little bit about the work you are doing here in the UAE to make your coaching program more inclusive for people of determination. We're fortunate enough to have had an opportunity to work with people of determination, um, I think, since the 2010-11. We had a lady called Howler who had an autistic child and was looking for someone that, looking for an organisation that could provide sporting opportunities for them. So we started with that called Goals UAE, and then um, and then we've been building up ever since. And then when the Special Olympics came in, I was um, employed as the, the community engagement manager, and that gave us a real insight into how to support people of determination. And ever since then, my company's been working hard to make sure that whatever we do, we provide opportunities for them, whether it's yeah, kind of unified events or you know special occasions or joining in you know um, initiatives for for people of determination. For example, just recently we had the um, World Down Syndrome Day, so all our players and coaches came to training in old socks, you know, that kind of stuff. So just whatever we can do to support and facilitate, um, you know, a unified generation, we, 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 we jump on it, really. So why did you decide to create the unified teams rather than have separate teams for the disabled players? Was it because you wanted to be more inclusive? Yeah, 100%. Um, you know, we, for someone that's going, I mean, like I said, I was born... In Ghana, and you know, I've seen, I've seen depravity. I've seen people who, or situations where people could be supported better. So I've always had in my heart to be more kind of altruistic and support whatever I could. So you know, when there's a chance to help, you know, others, especially when you know 
the story behind it. I mean, working with the Special Olympics World Games, you know, we had real insight into the situations and the, the the conditions that some people of determination faced in their homes and society. So you know, it's real, it's real heart wrenching, and it you know it hits home that you know if you're in a position to help, and we're fortunate enough to you know be in a position where we can help, you know, with our various resources. So we just we do whatever we can do, and, and having an inclusive society is really important because I want my kids to to see that you know just because someone's different it doesn't mean that they're bad you know, or that they can't do certain things. So I want that kind of image and that personality and, and that kind of education to go through my kids and through all the kids that we have an impact with across the past. And does it work out? I mean, what benefits did you see among the players who took part? That was brilliant. I mean, we, you know, we had obviously partners. We had the athletes, which are the people of determination, and their partners were our, inverted commas, our normal you know, children. And, um, you know, they, it's funny because they, they suddenly just become different Kids, they 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 kind of be more caring and they be more conscious of others. And you know, when you're playing sport, you know, in football that we use mainly, you know, they get to a point when they're parted to, you know, the athlete, and then they're scoring a goal. And the joy they get from the athlete scoring is just as much as they would if they if they scored, or even if if not more, you know. And then the parents also just seeing their their children understanding that there are people out there less fortunate than we are, and get them the opportunity to help out because in the UAE, obviously we know what the UAE is like and it's affluent, it's, you know, all this bling and, and shiny things, but giving our kids an opportunity to, to see something that's different, you know, it's, it's massive, massive, it has a huge impact across the parents, kids and everyone that, that gets involved in everything that we do. Oh, it sounds completely awesome. Really lovely to have you join us on the line. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you for uh, interrupting your holiday and your charitable work out there in Ghana to join us on the line. That's Seth Amoafo. He is the founder of Pass Abadabi, a community coaching firm that basically involves uh, both children of determination and mainstream children and puts them into the same team they all get to play football together it sounds absolutely fantastic brilliant to talk about that right here on eye on education on the agenda on dubai Eye 103.8 this is eye on education on the agenda with the royal grammar school guildford dubai passionate about creating personalized learning experiences to nurture independent and future ready young people hello there welcome back to the program this is the agenda it's also eye on education time that's our special program where we put uh, the focus on education stories uh, we do it every single friday between 11 and 1 in partnership with the royal grammar school guildford dubai and it is my absolute pleasure today uh, to turn our attention to this it is a whole year unbelievably uh, since this, this is Yep, today marks exactly one year since Expo 2020 Dubai officially closed its doors in a blaze of glory. I suppose it was really the the sort of gates that it closed, those massive gates. And after six months of events, concerts, festivities, feasts and fireworks, memories of the World's Fair will last for years, as will the educational legacy. That is thanks to a continuing programme of events based around the remaining pavilions. And one person who was involved in that educational programme right from the start was Marjan Faradouni, who was Chief Experience Officer at Expo 2020 Dubai and is now Chief of Education and Culture at Expo City Dubai, which, of course, is the legacy neighbourhood. And I'm delighted to say Marjan joins me right now uh, on the line, on Teams. Lovely to have you with us. How are you? Always great to hear from you, Georgia. (laughs) It's an absolute pleasure to have you join us on the line. Thank you so much. Now, I'm going to make you cast your mind back, first of all, and look back on the education programme from Expo. What, for you, were the highlights? Oh, there are many highlights. I can't uh, speak uh, about all of them, but uh, the one that I will never forget is actually welcoming uh, a million uh, young people to our site, specifically to uh, our school program, Um, and seeing the excitement in their faces and the spark of curiosity as they would come through our doors and hearing the great things from uh, them, uh, you know, I would speak to a lot of them when they'd come through and they'd just be absolutely so happy to be part of the expo. So those um, young uh, young students who came through our doors is something I'd never forget about our education um, program. And they became a hit. Everybody would ask about them when 
they weren't on site and they were like, when are they coming back? So it's it's those students. Yeah, there was a month, I think, maybe or maybe not even that long when the children weren't on site because of I think maybe it was because of a, a surge in the country of, of COVID cases. And we were still presenting the radio show from there. And it was really lovely to see them all come back on site. And my goodness me, you packed them in in the last month. Uh, literally, I, I've never seen so many groups of children coming through the gates because we were right by the mobility gate. And I was on air, obviously, at 10. And that was often the time when, uh, I mean, group upon group would come through and then you'd separate them out into the various pavilions. And that was what was fantastic about the site was that it was big enough to take, I mean, hundreds of thousands of people at any time. Was and I'd, Yeah, and I'd like to just um, say that this was a testament of the very detailed planning of the school operations team and the school program to welcome that many uh, uh, kids and school students at a very difficult time. So not only did, were we able to bring in those huge numbers, they went up to 20,000 in the last uh, couple of days of welcoming them, uh, but it was also done in a very uh, difficult situation of making sure that their health and safety was a priority. So we look back with pride. We miss those days. Um, but, um, you know, it really has uh, created the foundation of uh, where we are today. I have to ask you, was it as good as you expected? Or I mean, had you, I mean, obviously it was a huge success. We, did you expect it to be that big a success? Honestly, uh, Georgie, I have to be honest, looking back, um, we didn't expect to have been able to attract that many students considering it was during a pandemic and a resurgence of a pandemic. Um, you know, of all the uh, organizations across the countries that was mostly affected, it was firstly the schools. So the schools would close, the school would work from home. So we didn't really know how um, this would fare. And for us to be able to say um, one year later that we welcomed more than one million students and not only had them visit, but uh, had them be performers, um, uh, contributors, um, uh, to, to this program is is something that uh, was far beyond our expectations, uh, frankly, during that difficult time. Did you always intend for there to be a legacy education program? Um, I'd go back to uh, Expo in general. Uh, when I first worked for Expo, it was actually to think of the strategy of legacy as a whole. So um, it was uh, something that was embedded in everything that we planned, uh, who, wherever you sat in the organization. And specifically when it came to uh, education and the work that um, I was entrusted with around the pavilions and the school program, we always had um, the future in mind. We always intended this to continue as part of uh, and parcel of this human-centric city. Um, it's a city that's not only welcoming people to work from, but it's also uh, welcoming uh, people of all ages, specifically a focus on young people, to come to a place where they can experience exhibitions and programs that complement what they're learning in the classroom. So we did that during the event. Of course, we had far many more uh, pavilions, but we continue to do that um, uh, at Expo City Dubai. Um, but it was always part of the plan. But to, to be honest, we didn't think that it would um, you know, be what it is today. And we're very proud that through the program we introduced in uh, Expo, we have penetration of 100% of the school market uh, across all Emirates. Um, and uh, one of the things that I'm very proud of what the team has worked on is that the school community trusts us. Uh, so they do come back to us um, asking us for support in learning resources, asking us for support in providing programs for their schools. Um, so yeah, this was always part of the plan, but it wasn't as um, as as what I you know I thought it would be. You know, it's beyond what I expected, to be honest. I mean, what is next for your education program? Because I know that you're still welcoming schools on site to go to the the various pavilions. At, at first, I think there were only going to be maybe the three legacy pavilions. And now, of course, you've got the museums as well and the women's pavilion, of course. So currently we're operating uh, seven uh, pavilions and one of which we're planning for, which is the museum. So the newly introduced ones are the Stories of Nations, uh, which I hope you've heard about. And they are basically, uh, um, you know, uh, they are um, an honor to the countries that have participated uh, in the expo and people can go through these pavilions and learn about the countries who participated. So in terms of what has changed is really, we have not that many pavilions, but we've recreated journeys and 
within our exhibitions, and we've layered them with programs and workshops for schools uh, across different age groups. And we've also complemented that with family programming that families can come and enjoy with. So a few examples are, for example, at the Terra Pavilion, we do have three workshops that we offer to schools that talk about water conversation, conservation, biodiversity. Um, we also have an amazing science show um, uh, that we offer to schools. And this goes across our different pavilions. And we also uh, are working uh, harder on offering these additional programs to complement our exhibitions. But also in the near future, we would be looking at introducing and refreshing the current exhibitions that we have so that we make sure that we are on uh, on top of communicating and inspiring the younger generation on matters uh, that, um, you know, on topics that matter to all of us, whether it's in the field of sustainability and environment, technology and history, and of course, culture. So this is where our planning are heading, but it's um, really post expo was focusing on developing the additional programs and workshops for schools to uh, benefit from uh, post expo. Now, of course, we've got Expo City is hosting COP28 in November. I know that uh, you guys are preparing for that uh, in many ways by preparing the young people. Can you tell me a little bit more about your Climate Ambassadors programme that you're running in collaboration with the Ministry of Climate Change and the Environment? How is that going to work? Um, so we are um, working a lot on engaging uh, the young students around what COP is, and we're very proud to have uh, been selected by the Ministry of Climate Change to work on developing a very specialized program uh, called the Climate Ambassador Program, where we actually simulate uh, what um, a, a COP is. We introduce them to what COP is, which is basically the conference of parties where negotiations happen. And what we do through this program is we actually simulate negotiations um, that students undertake. So when students come in, and this is for students between the ages of 12 to 17, um, they're placed in blocks of countries. And the first thing that they're asked to do is to think about what the issues of their block is, so whether they're the Arab states or the uh, G77 plus China. So they think of what their um, the issues of their country is vis-a-vis -vis climate crises. And then the second part of the program is for them to come in and discuss what potential actions that they need to take as blocks. And what's wonderful about this program is that it gives them a sense of what the issues of climate um, is. And so we talk about it in the context of the loss and damage fund, um, biodiversity loss, um, you know, and just energy transition. So they get to talk about these very important matters and, and we simulate it um, with them. And, and in addition to them understanding more of what the climate issues are, they're also developing their soft skills. And that's also one of the big uh, elements of the school program is that we also uh, help support the development of their leadership skills, their sense of collaboration. And they're asked in this climate ambassador program to actually take a decision and they realize that it's not that easy. So it's a really great um, simulated program. We're um, very happy to have launched it. So far, we've been able to um, uh, have uh, around 850, more than 850 students who have gone through it uh, um, between 27 schools uh, that include the private and public schools. Um, so it's going very well. It's a bit, um, it's uh, in Ramadan, you know, with schools, it's, um, you know, we're having a few more schools, but they, we will be coming back uh, strong with the program post Ramadan. And we're also looking to offer it to universities. Uh, we found interest in the universities to actually be part of these simulations. So we're actually hosting one of them in the next two weeks. I have to say, I imagine adults would quite like to do it as well. I think many of us don't really understand what goes on at a COP. I mean, certainly I don't understand. And I've been researching it in some details. I can, I sort of don't really process how they manage 192 countries sort of in, in the conversation, if you know what I mean, how every voice gets heard. So it sounds like a fascinating programme. And certainly it is. And I invite you to come and uh, uh, be come. an observer, uh, <laughs> Georgia. Uh, you're welcome at any time. You can just get in touch with us. And I actually invite a lot of my peers to witness this because it's a great learning for the uh, people who are not very familiar with what a COP is. And it's also a great insight on what negotiations mean. It's pretty serious as a program and we're very proud of it. 
fantastic to speak to you about that and also to find out more about that educational legacy of Expo City. Uh, well, I suppose Expo 2020 Dubai, which of course is now Expo City. Thank you so much for joining us here on the agenda. Uh, that voice was Marjan Faradouni. She is Chief Experience at, well, no, she was Chief Experience Officer at Expo 2020 Dubai. She's now Chief of Education and Culture at Expo City Dubai. A great pleasure to have you on the line as always. Thank you very much indeed. This is Eye on Education on the Agenda. With the Royal Grammar School Guildford Dubai. Passionate about creating personalised learning experiences to nurture independent and future ready young people. Yes, welcome back to Eye on Education on the Agenda and plenty of education topics uh, that we're looking at over the next hour and a half or so. Uh, Let's focus for a few minutes on rising school fees uh, because for the first time in four years as I'm sure you've heard private schools in Dubai and Sharjah will be allowed to put their fees up at the start of the new school year. Now there are conditions schools in both Emirates need to perform well in their school inspections and any school that remains static or drops down in the rankings is barred from a fee rise. However those that improve dramatically certainly in Dubai could put their fees up by as much as 6%. And that type of hike will definitely be hitting parents in their pockets. But will it lead to higher salaries for teachers? John Bramley, the Vice President of Communications at GEMS Education, told the agenda that teachers at their schools would get a pay rise at both their Indian curriculum and international schools. Today's decision by KHDA to increase school fees for academic year 2023-24 empowers us to invest further in our teachers and facilities. We will be implementing teacher salary increases in April for our Indian curriculum schools and in September for our international schools. Okay, joining me now to discuss whether other schools here are likely to follow suit is Lisa Grace, who is the editorial director of Teach Middle East magazine and and in the past has worked as a teacher uh, for more than 20 years in all sorts of roles. Uh, So, Lisa, you can see this from both sides of the coin. Good morning. How are you? Good morning. I'm good. How are you? Very well indeed. Good to have you on the line to talk about such a uh, tricky subject. Uh, Let's go for the simple question first, shall we? Do you think teachers here are in for a raise? I think they should be given a raise. And I think schools that understand the value of teachers will push some of that money at least to the teachers because really in real terms teachers have not had a pay rise they've had a pay cut because inflation has gone on you know sky high and lots of teachers over the pandemic etc saw their pay freeze Um, some were cut some were laid off so good schools who value good teachers I think will push some of that money towards giving teachers a rise and let me just say they should because if they got good or better results in their inspections, it's all because of the quality of teaching and learning. That standard is very heavily weighted as well as progress and attainment. And you can't get that without having brilliant teachers. So they should. They deserve to get one. Now, last year on World Teachers Day, UNESCO, the United Nations Education Programme, sounded the alarm on a global teacher shortage crisis. They said that 69 million teachers are needed to reach universal basic education by 2030. They said the largest deficit was in sub-Saharan Africa. Now, clearly there's a shortage of teachers. Therefore, you would expect that in some ways that scarcity would push up their value, push up their salaries. Is that not something that you've seen, though, across the board? Um, It is and it isn't. Dubai is now um, and the UAE is now no longer a hardship place. So they they do get a lot of applications. Um, But I think for schools that do want the best, yes, they are paying a bit more. Um, Are teachers' salaries going up across the board in spite of this shortage? No, they're not. Um, If you look what's happening in the UK, there are strike actions because in real terms, they've gotten a pay cut. Um, And so even though there are massive shortages across the globe, teachers' salaries aren't keeping pace. 
it's a bit ironic, but yeah, that's exactly what's happening. Yeah, it's really weird. And, and going back to those strikes in the United Kingdom, and the reason why this is relevant, I think, here in the UAE is because so many teachers in the UAE are recruited from the UK. They The teachers went on strike for several days and, you know, that meant that pupils couldn't go to school. The state schools were closed. And they have won some victory, a little bit of a victory. They're going to get a rise of 4.3% compared to last year. And now the starting salary for teachers will be £30,000. Now, I always multiply pounds by five. So that's 150,000 dirhams you know, if you're if you're lucky. Um, do you think that that's commensurate with what teachers are being paid out here? And do you think that pay rise in the UK will impact on pay rises here? Um, it's not commensurate with what teachers are being paid here because of the packages and the tax. Um, when you have £30,000 in the UK and then you are taxed on that, you don't take home a whole lot. Um and will will the increase in the UK impact here, potentially in certain schools, but in others, not really. That is, I mean, I, you, I just can't get over the fact it, it seems like, you know, it's the most valued profession. It's so important. All of us consider it so important for our children. We've all learnt how absolutely awful homeschooling is if you're not prepped and ready for it, having done it in the pandemic. It's just bizarre that no one's caught up yet. It's the irony that everybody in our industry grapple with. So we are all saying teachers are doing the work that no one else could potentially do unless they're properly trained, ready, have all the skills. And at the same time, they're not being compensated in line with that. It's it's something that I always talk about. I write about a lot because teachers could have chosen to be anything they wanted to be, but they chose to teach. A lot of the misconception is that, oh, you teach because you can't do anything else. And that is not true. You could be anything. Teachers could be anything they wanted to be. They chose to teach. And so they really should be paid much better than they are for the kind of professionals that they are. And they're not. And it's it boggles everyone's minds, but somehow it's just not being handled. I don't know why. I mean, the the situation we face here in the UAE is that the schools seem to frequently recruit quite young teachers who I suppose are sort of more portable (laughs) in the nicest sense of the world. If you're young, it's easy to travel. Uh, You don't have maybe sort of restrictions or families holding you down. Um, But then they leave after a few years. So there seems to be this lack of experienced teachers potentially in the UAE. Is that because the salaries aren't rising fast enough here or is there no link? Oh, no, there's a link. With families, the packages are different. You have to give school fees for children and the older teachers are more experienced. And so they command a bigger salary. And unless you're in a not-for-profit schools, there is a bottom line. Um, There are profit and loss sheets to deal with. And so the schools will go for teachers that will cost them less than eventually that leads to younger teachers being in the system. And it also leads to that level that you talk about of instability and churn. But having said all of that, even young teachers need to be compensated well because they are working hard. Do you see what I mean? Absolutely. Oh, yeah. No, I'm in no doubt that even the young teachers need to get decent salaries. And obviously, if they're straight out of college, then in many ways, they're bringing with them, you know, the newest, most modern teaching practices and attitudes. Has the profession of teaching changed over the last decade, in your view? It has. Um, There's a lot more obvious, you know, change towards tech that we can't, you know, we can't deny. Um, Teaching methods have changed. It's a lot more facilitation, a lot less didactic teaching. There's a lot more in terms of what teachers are being asked to do and how quickly they have to adapt that really it has now become an even more dynamic profession. So it was dynamic before because every day is different in a school and in a classroom. But nowadays, every day you might have three or four changes. So you really have to be quick and think on your feet. So the profession is always evolving. 
63% of teachers consider leaving the profession. That is astonishing. Those, that's the number of people, the number of teachers who are considering quitting the profession. What, what is it about the job that they are finding so difficult or that they're finding unexpectedly hard? I think if you strip away everything that teachers have to do and just left them with the job of teaching, it wouldn't be that high a rate that want to leave. But it's all the other bits, the paperwork, the red tape, the relentless inspection framework, the unforgiving schedule, you know, it's it's a lot. And so if you don't have that stamina and if you just get tired after a while and so you you think of options because you can't maintain the level of energy needed for such a long time. There are people who can. I did it for 21 years, but it is a hard task. And so if you lose energy, you want to you want to do something that requires less strain, I think. Really interesting to do a deep dive into the teaching profession with you. Thank you so much for your time. Uh, you've just been listening to Lisa Grace, editor, Editorial Director of Teach Middle East magazine, speaking right here on the agenda on Dubai Eye 103.8. Of course, what prompted this conversation was whether or not a rise in school fees would translate to a rise in teachers' salaries. This is Eye on Education on the Agenda. With the Royal Grammar School, Guildford, Dubai. Hello there. Welcome back to The Agenda. Welcome back to Ion Education. Lots of lovely messages coming through on our message board about inclusivity. Uh, one person here, Viv, saying schools are not inclusive. In my view, they just pay lip service with token children. They should model better values. Uh, another person here saying, listening to Amberine, uh, we pay 20,000 dirhams per month for, ch- for therapy and learning support at school for just one child. Our son actually needs speech therapy on top of all of this, and none of it is insured. Amberine is correct by saying it's not just a financial pressure but the stress affects your marriage and limits your opportunities as well really interesting comments coming through on that it's uh, great to have you talking to us that was from Annaline now let's take our uh, our attention onto a slightly different topic because new advice is being issued by the World Health Organization that shows that healthy children and teenagers may no longer need to get the COVID-19 vaccine now the experts at the World Health Organization have updated their advice to prioritize the vaccines for those at greatest risk of death and severe disease. And that means for healthy children from six months to 17 years old, they don't need to have vaccines. The vaccine roadmap instead is being issued to reflect the Omicron stage of the pandemic, they say. And of course, because we have a high level of immunity levels in the population now, that's due to vaccines and, of course, previous infections. They call that hybrid immunity. Now, a little bit earlier, I wanted to get down into the nitty gritty of this and really find out what the World Health Organization's advice is for parents of children. So earlier I spoke to Dr. Kate O'Brien. Now, she is Director of Immunisation vaccines and biologicals at the World Health Organization. And I asked her why they've made this decision. You know, we're three years into this pandemic and uh, we're in a very different place uh, as a world, as countries and as communities uh, in terms of the virus and the evolution of the public health needs. As you said, we're living in an Omicron era and there is really now high population immunity because people have been vaccinated and because most everybody has been infected already. So this we call hybrid immunity. Um, And that means that there has been a really significant reduction in hospitalizations, severe disease, and death. And so we really have to take our recommendations in that context. Um, I really want to acknowledge that there are people who remain at high risk for those severe outcomes. There are still thousands of deaths every week that are reported from countries around the world, but we have a much clearer idea where those deaths um, are are occurring and who are at risk for severe disease and, and deaths. So what we've done is we've updated the recommendations to take into account all of the evidence that is now available to us, you know, in this in this now third year of the of the pandemic. So it's about 
in some ways, prioritising the vaccines for those who are most at need. I mean, this is a hypothetical scenario, but if there was enough vaccines to go around, everyone in the world could have as many as they wanted. Would your recommendation be for children and teenagers to get vaccinated? Well, that's the situation we're in. In fact, there is enough vaccine to go around and there has been for quite some time uh, for anybody to receive, you know, any doses that are recommended. So this we are not in a supply constraint anymore, not by a long shot. And so when we looked at the evidence for healthy children and teens, and I really want to emphasize that the recommendations um, specify different risk groups, and there are children and adolescents who fall into higher priority risk groups. But when we're talking just about healthy children and teens, the first thing is they are at very, very low risk of having a severe outcome from uh, a a COVID uh, infection. And because of that, and because many, if not most of them, have been infected already and have some level of immunity. Um, Country programs really need to look at the trade-offs of deploying vaccines for healthy uh, children and teens. There's no program in the world that doesn't have some constraint around the number of health workers that they have for giving vaccines, the cost of giving vaccines, and and the the you know the uh, time and energy of families um, to get children and teens vaccinated, and so it's really about the trade-offs. And I'll give just one example. Um, in the UK, there was uh, an evaluation done, and the results of the evaluation said that you'd have to vaccinate between eleven thousand and seventy-six thousand older children and adolescents to prevent a single hospitalization. When you contrast that with how many people over 60 you'd have to vaccinate in order to prevent a hospitalization, it's more than uh, tenfold less. So for 60-year-olds, you'd vaccinate about 500 to prevent a hospitalization, again, comparing with 11,000 to 76,000 older children and adolescents. And if we just compare that to influenza, for which we do have recommendations for vaccination across the age groups, there's about 8,000 healthy older children and adolescents who would have to be vaccinated to prevent a single hospitalization from influenza. So in, in this Omicron era, which we've been in for quite some time now, it's a less severe strain of, uh, of COVID. And we really do need to be able to take into consideration all of those facts uh, when we're making recommendations for for who should be vaccinated and with what priority. So here in the UAE, vaccines were widely available from, from very early days. So quite a lot of children and teenagers here have been vaccinated. Does that does your advice mean that they won't need boosters, that parents now could can just put that to one side? Yeah, that's a great question. First of all, it's really up to countries to decide how they'll take on these recommendations. Um, And it's good news that children and adolescents have received vaccines. They are safe. They're effective at preventing the severe end of the disease spectrum. But they're not that good, in fact, for preventing um, just getting infected or, or mild disease. And they don't last that long for those mild outcomes. So it's also really important that people are aware of exactly what a vaccine in a teen or a healthy child is is able to do. For kids who have already been vaccinated, listen, they're in, in good that's good for them. In fact, hybrid immunity where you've been vaccinated and you've had an infection is the best kind of immunity. So for kids who have already been vaccinated, our recommendations say you don't need they don't need any additional boosters. Um, and our recommendations also say, that for children who haven't yet been vaccinated, um, this is uh, uh, something that is safe and it is effective against severe disease. However, the risk of having severe disease is incredibly low. And so it's really up to countries and certainly up to individual decision-making about whether that's a priority uh, and whether or not that fits into um, the range of priorities that a country has. I really wanna emphasize that there's no concern around some additional safety issue or the vaccine's not working. It's really about whether this is the intervention that is of priority for a country. Can we look at this new Omicron era, uh, step back a bit and look at it? It's, 
Is COVID-19 still a priority for the World Health Organization? Is COVID vaccination still a priority? Or in this Omicron age, has, has it just become less of an issue across the board? It's still a really big priority, and I'm going to tell you why. First of all, the virus is still causing thousands of deaths every week. There are hundreds of millions of vulnerable people, those who are in the high-risk category, who remain unprotected. And the virus is continuing to mutate. We really don't know exactly what this virus is going to do. We've now been living in an era um, for a year, which has been the Omicron era, and we haven't seen additional mutations that have increased in terms of severity or increased in terms of transmissibility to any substantial degree. Um, if we were to get a mutation of this virus that caused more severe disease, our recommendations would be evaluated again and we would change them. Um, and we're not really in a setting yet where we fully settled, where this virus has fully settled into a predictable pattern. So for those reasons, it remains a public health emergency of international concern and it remains uh, a priority for countries to pay attention to. However, many, many countries have had a major backsliding in their immunization of children and adolescents uh, for all of the other vaccines that are protecting them from life-threatening diseases. And 2023 is the year where that needs to be corrected. Every country needs to be looking at their immunization program for adolescents, for children, for pregnant women, and evaluating what happened during this pandemic the impact of the pandemic on those vaccines and making a plan and executing that plan to be sure that everybody who missed their vaccines because of the pandemic has gotten caught up and the program for immunization is back on steady footing. That was Dr. Kate O'Brien there, Director of Immunisation, Vaccines and Biologicals at the World Health Organisation. Something of a coup for the agenda to have her live on the programme. She's normally the person you see speaking at the big global press conferences. So amazing that she could make the time to speak to us live here on the agenda on Dubai I 103.8. The Agenda is live Monday to Friday from 10am till 1pm.